All right, everybody, if you don't have your hands on the only three snack crisps, it's one of the most delicious, healthy chips available to snackers today. I've tried them. These things are absolutely delicious. Spelt flour, sea salt, and spring water is all you'll find this delicious 130-calorie treat. They are perfect with your favorite dip, on the go, in between meals, and as a bonus, they're vegan-friendly too. Order your three-pack bundle today at onlythreesnacks.com. That's onlythreesnacks.com. Dot com. People, get your hands on them. These things are absolutely fantastic. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Today, we have a senior advertising copywriter, a former collegiate golfer. He's a speaker at golf clubs across America, a former copywriter with McCann Erickson in New York, He's a poet, the author of several books, a word doctor. He was the first white caddy at the legendary Augusta National Golf Club, which is the home of the Masters. His book, Freddie and Me, was named one of the best Masters books and about Augusta National Golf Club. He started Creative Wizards. Please welcome to the show, Trip Bowden. Trip, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. A guest for us on our other podcast, The Golf Zone. It was well-received. I just had to have you on Before the Lights to a different audience, and we're going to have some fun today. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun last time. I truly enjoyed it. Because I made my mark, but you made me sound like I have. <laughs> You're not yet. You're still uh, earning your mark. Good <laughs> progress. Who was Trip Bowden as a child? Oh, my gosh. Your questions are amazing. Uh, <laughs> Trip Bowden as a child. I was... Uh, if anybody was ever footloose and fancy free, it was me. Okay. I was, I, I grew up knowing I was unconditionally loved. And when you know that you can just do anything. And, and I did, but funnily enough, if that's a word, I don't really know words. Like I said, I just kind of, I know what they feel like, but funnily enough, um, pretty much everything I achieved in life, my mom made me do it first, mm. whether it was soccer, even golf. I mean, obviously Freddie comes into that and you'll hear about that later, but everything that I achieved, uh, any sort of statue or whatever you want to call it. Um, my mom made me do it, even baseball. What is your first memory of one of your loves, which is fishing? Oh, gosh. For, um, we moved from, uh, we lived in South Carolina, uh, Sumter, South Carolina. Pop was in the Air Force and was a pilot, as well as a surgeon and all these other things he can do. If ever there was a Renaissance man, it's my dad. And we were, I guess it was 1972, we moved back to Augusta and lived in a neighborhood called Dorchester. And there was a trail behind our house that led to the creek. And it was actually a race creek that runs into Augusta Ooh, National okay. uh, by number 12, of course. And my mom would pack me a little lunch, and I would have my Zepco rod and reel, red Zepco rod and reel, and take my dog Geraldine down this trail at first light in the summer. And we'd go down there and I'd spend the whole day fishing. I even learned to like do little campfires. And I, they called them, and it's a terrible name, but they called horny heads. And they were long, skinny fish, like little horns on top of their heads and i would catch them and clean them and me and the dog would eat them that's awesome and i was i don't know second grade maybe you know that's my first memory some of these questions we've talked about on the golf zone but my before the lights podcast people haven't heard them and i'm gonna try and keep those as to a minimum as i can so people if there's more you want to hear from trip go pull up the golf zone podcast and look for the episode on trip bowden but trip the first time you tried golf was actually at Augusta National Golf Club. If you would talk to my listeners about that first time you ever swung a golf club. <laughs> you're, 
you're absolutely right. Uh, well, my first quote golf lesson was from uh, Freddie Bennett on the par three course uh, with a sand wedge and a uh, top flight range ball. And he just told me to pretty much like a John Daly kind of grip and rip and see what you got. And I bladed that some bitch right into the pond, but <laughs> it felt great. And I was like, golly, is this, this is golf. And he actually taught me the golf grip uh, on a cane pole, which is, it's like the Hogan grip, you know, with just the one finger in the pot, the pot of your hand or palm of your hand. And I pulled in a fish, a brim with uh, on a cane pole that he had cut down from the uh, bamboo on number four on the course. And I pulled in this fish and, and I said, this is golf. He said, that's golf. And that's how I kind of got introduced to it. And then um, when Masters rolled around, I actually got my first quote official golf lesson uh, the Monday after Masters by a guy named Mike Shannon, who is considered the uh, now considered number, the number one uh, short game instructor in the world, but it was uh, surreal to get a lesson at Augusta National. Of course, I didn't realize what Augusta National was at the time. I was 10 years old and about as goofy and stupid as I am now. Freddie Bennett, legendary Augusta <laughs> National caddy master. Who was Freddie Bennett? Oh, wow. That's, that's iconic right there. Tommy, with your questions. That's like asking with no disrespect or anything. Like, who was Jesus Christ? Uh, Freddie was like nobody I'd ever met in my life. He was insanely smart. I can say, you know, Remember like an elephant? And I said, no, he had memory like a computer. I mean, he once told me when I was starting to caddy out there, talking about all the membership and who to caddy for, who not to. He's listing all these people. It takes me a little while to realize he's listing them alphabetically. There's over 300 of them, which is unbelievable that someone could do that. And mm-hmm. he had a just a heart of, I hate to say heart of gold because that's so cliche, but he'll, he never said no to anybody. And everyone wants to say no. He said, let me see what I can do. That's what he always said. That was his answer. And he would, Figure it out. I mean, if you ever had a problem, you went to Freddie. If anything was wrong, you went to Freddie. And he was funny as hell. I mean, he was Robin Williams, very Robin Williams esque. And funnily enough, he, uh, there's that word again, he didn't like crowds. Um, I'm a big crowd person, but he could bring the crowds to him. And we'd always hang out in his office and he would tell stories, you know, about the golf course, just about life, about mosquitoes and turkeys, which I can know we can't share on the air, but I think I've shared that with you before. <laughs> but he was just an amazing, amazing individual. He had, he had such an aura about him. The only aura I felt similar in my, my life just by being around someone was when uh, Michael Jordan came out to Augusta National and, and played. And uh, Freddie called me up at the crack of dawn, well, before the crack of dawn. And there was to come on out. You got to come on out. So I did. And there was Michael Jordan out there on the putting green. And from Freddie's office, which is about maybe 50 yards, 75 yards from the uh, putting green at the time, I could just feel his aura. And I walked out under the the little light there in the old pro shop and Michael Jordan looks up and he looks at me and he kind of does one of these, you know, nod to the head and I nodded to him and he smiled and I smiled and I just turned around. That was it. But I could just feel his presence. That's and awesome. You could feel his presence. Trip. what life lessons then did you learn from Freddie? Mm. What didn't I learn? Uh, it's never too late to say you're sorry. Uh, there's always hope um, to go for it. He always had, this is one of the greatest phrases uh, that I loved about, he had so many, but you know, you can lay it from your dad. And I don't, you may recall when Chip Beck, poor fellow, he, he laid up on 15 at that time. He was, uh, three strokes clear of the third place person that he was two behind Langer, I believe. And he lays up. Now, granted, he had about 240 to the green, but dude, this is a master. You're going you're gonna to finish second anyway. Go for it, man. You know, you can, Freddie always said, you can lay it from your dad, man. I thought, you know what? That's a, that's a great lesson. And another one, uh, I don't know why they all have to do a death, but, there was a, uh, a member who was real tight and squeaky and, and wouldn't give you a dime, Marty. And, and Freddie turned to me and said, 
In fact, I didn't get a tip that day from this guy. And he said, let me tell you something. You ever seen a luggage rack on a hearse? <laughs> <laughs> you can't take that with you, man. <laughs> and just to live, live life to the fullest. And, and crazy, another, funnily or crazily enough, there was a time when I caddied like 90 days in a row because the money was so good. It was in the beginning. Um, actually, it was 92 days to be exact. The money was so good. And I never had money like that in my pocket in my life. And it was all cash. I'm walking around with like $3,000 cash my money going to Applebee's and where there's dollar draft and going all around. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, I'll buy the whole round. You know, I got a hundred dollar bills like coming out the wall. <laughs> so he, uh, he never missed a single day. If I, I never, I was never there when he wasn't there. Only one time he had a doctor's appointment for his dentures. Uh, I remember he, I guess, you know, all his teeth pulled and had a whole set of dentures and, but he's back that afternoon. That's the only time I remember him not being there when I was there. Think about that. It's a hell of a track record. Yes, it is. I know he's got a bunch of them, but is there one or two Freddyisms that always stand out in your mind? Well, the luggage rack one certainly is one. Um, well, this one's kind of funny. Well, they're both funny. Um, it was a, a caddy. I uh, was asking him what he's going to do during the summer, you know, when the club closes. And just quick as you can imagine, he said, close your eyes and tell me what you see. The caddy closes his eyes and he says, nothing. He said, that's exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> 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 and the other was, uh, I mean, like I said, there's so many, but I love this one. Um, it was really raucous and crazy down in the caddy house. And Freddie was trying to get me quiet down. And this was after me after everybody had already caddied and stuff. And they was down there raising hell. And he said, if y'all don't shut the hell up, I ain't going to pay you. And he said, man, it gets so quiet. You hear a rat pissing on cotton. <laughs> Pretty quiet. <laughs> That's quiet. Freddie goes, so, I mean, it's the visuals of that. He's thinking, okay, there's a rat and cotton. Okay. I can hear nothing. <laughs> when did you decide then to write Freddie and me? And better yet, let me go one step farther. Okay. Why did you think it was time for you to tell the story? Wow. I actually never thought about that. Um, well, when he, when he passed away, I, it was in, in December, and that's a very busy time in the world of advertising and have my own agency, even though you might think, not think so, but it's extremely busy. And, and even though I've, I've done many a eulogy, I'm, I'm cool with funerals. I almost kind of love them, almost like I love a wedding. I just couldn't bring myself to go. I felt like, you know, people like Freddie aren't meant to die. And I, I just couldn't do it. And it's the only time in my life I've ever frozen up like that. And a little time passed, and I've always wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And one day I came home, and my wife Fletch said, "It's time for you to write a book." I said, "About what?" She said, How "About Freddie." I said, "I didn't know there was a story there." So she handed me paper, cold beer, and sat me down at the kitchen table and said, "Write me a prologue." And I said, "What's that?" <laughs> I really didn't know what one was. She goes, you're a writer, an English major. You don't know what a prologue is? I said, what's a prologue? So she explained what it was, you know, introduction, so to speak. And you, you've, uh, you've read Freddie and me, but the uh, the prologue is actually almost verbatim, almost unedited. But I wrote it out as, as an outline. And I didn't realize there was so much of a story there until I started writing this outline. And one begat the other begat the other. And I didn't realize how much influence Freddie had in my life. And I say when I do my talks that, you know, he didn't tell the story of my life. He edited it. 
if it weren't for Freddie tipping the domino one way or the other, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I didn't realize there was a book there. To be honest, I really, I really didn't. And it turns out that there was one health story there. It's not just a book. It's it's a life story that is intriguing. It in, it pulls you in. It's a great read. And Trip, if you would give out your website where listeners can get the get an autographed copy of your books. Oh, thank you, Tommy. Uh, it's uh, tripbowden.com. That's T-R-I-P-P-B-O-W-D-E-N. Bowden, as in Bobby Bowden. We're actually cousins, distant, but we have the same nose. Uh, and if you log on and just follow the prompts, I'll uh, I'll personalize it for you and I'll ship it out. I'm telling you, people, Trip's not just got Freddie me. We're going to go over some other books as well. But if there's one book, if you're going to go to his website, you're going to go, which one should I get? At least get Freddie and me, have Trip autograph it, send it to you. I'm telling you, you'll read this within two days. And I'm putting that as a max. You might read it in one sitting, but you'll finish this in two days. This book is outstanding. If you have any interest, not just in golf, but in Augusta National, the Masters, um, life lessons about growing up and admiring someone, Freddie and Me is your book. So make sure you get your, your hands on that. Trip. your first job was at age 14 at the 1982 Masters as a four caddy. And for my listeners that may not be real understanding of golf, can you first explain what a four caddy is? Four caddies have different positions on the, on the golf holes. Uh, they have them like spotters. Uh, in, the, in the fairways, like on number two, they'd be down to the right or to the left to, to show where the ball went. But my job was actually, crazily enough, that's a pretty good word, was uh, fixing the divot marks, I mean, the ball marks on the on the greens. Okay. And also, I had this fiberglass cane pole, and uh, when they blast out of the bunker and the sand would go onto the green, we would sweep it off with this fiberglass cane pole. And it, it was really cool to, in fact, one of the coolest moments of my life, um, I'm a huge Arnold Palmer fan, and I fixed his, his ball mark as he's walking onto the green. And he put his arm on my hand on my shoulder and he thanked me. I was like, oh my God, I just got touched by the king. I could feel it. And then a few hours later, uh, well, once uh, everybody came through, uh, number two, we were allowed to just go do what we wanted. And we had a hall pass for the whole day. But I would go into Freddie's office and just talk with him and listen to his stories and see the people come in. Well, a few hours later, in walks Arnold Palmer. And I'm sitting in Freddie's chair his office chair. And he's standing up talking to me. And Freddie and Arnie are good buddies. And he walks in and, hey, Freddie, and he freezes in mid-voice. And Arnie points at me like, you're that punk kid that was fixing my ball mark. What are you doing in Freddie's office? Who the hell are you? Like, whose son are you? You must be somebody big. And he's sitting in Freddie's chair. And I just kind of smiled and got up and Freddie introduces us. And I'm like, oh, my God. I can only get a touch on the shoulder by Arnie Palmer. I didn't even get to shake his hand. And later I get to hold his forearm, the leather grip. It was little things like that to me or everything. We talked briefly at the very beginning of the show of your first lesson, first golf shot at Augusta and things like that. You end up becoming a collegiate golfer and you played at Augusta University. How did you end up choosing to play at Augusta U? Uh, by being told I could walk on at Georgia and going up there one weekend, and it's close to midnight time to go to bed, and then guys are going, hey, man, let's go party. I'm like, it's like midnight. No, no, it's time to party. I'm like, oh, okay. And I can party with the best of them in my youth, but I thought, you know what? After that evening, I said, I'll die here. I need to go home. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom had a good deal with me. Uh, uh, I could stay at home, 
rent-free as long as I didn't do any drugs and didn't drive drunk. I said, hey, I can do that. So I ended up, uh, well, actually, I walked on to uh, Augusta College. And they showed, they showed some interest, but there was no scholarship in the beginning. But then um, after my freshman year, I got to, I got a full ride from Coach Ernie Lanford. He was, he was a great coach, great guy. And, in fact, uh, interesting story or inside of my college golf career as a freshman, I was a uh, player of the year, senior, most improved. <laughs> <laughs> a little backwards of what normal people do, but that's all right. A <laughs> yeah, little bit of a bell curve. It was a complete opposite of uh, Paul Azinger. He actually was um, – actually, I think he was like the fourth man on his team or something crazy in Florida. And then I'll say he wins a PGA and has a great pro career, but – yeah, I was uh, I was always amazed how good the the number four guys were for the we were division two uh, division two school, but we played division one golf and you know played with the big boys and I'd be paired up with the number four guy and I'd shoot my seventy four and he'd shoot sixty seven. I thought you know what maybe I need to go do something else <laughs> <laughs> for a living. You were the first full time white caddy at Augusta. What do you recall about the first time you put on the Augusta National white caddy jumpsuit? Where do you get these questions? I think of them. <laughs> They're phenomenal. Uh, well, I've been in the caddy house before because I kind of grew up out there, as, as you read from uh, in, in the book. But when I donned the uniform and then they had the, the white foot joys with the Masters Green uh, FJ on them. And I feel like, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm official. You know, I'm, I can't believe I'm out here actually in a caddy. And the first day I didn't. There was no uh, pecking order per se with, with Freddie. You've been out there on your stripes. And so the first day I sat there in that uniform all day long, baked some butter beans, ate some fried pork chop sandwiches, drank about six do- dozen, I felt like anyway, grape sodas. And just said, wow, okay. So this is Cadia. And I didn't go out the first day. I just sat there, paid my dues. But then after that, Freddie, so kind, you know, me out with some of the great caddies of Augusta National that had won masters tournaments and they knew I was out there not trying to take their job that I was out there trying to learn the craft and, and I learned from, from the best and the biggest but this, this may be the greatest Freddieism, at least as it relates to Augusta National is you don't read those greens man you remember them and they do the same thing every time the first time he told me that I thought that's impossible look of course it does the same thing every time and, but he was right I can still read them now when I go to the tournament from outside the ropes I can see where the line said, nope, I ain't going in. And then you see the puzzle. You've seen it on TV and probably in close, you know, close to personal too. The looks in their faces, then they're going like, how the hell did that ball break uphill? And he said, it's because of the grain, you know. It all runs towards the pump house on number 11, behind 11 green. And he said, you know, that thing will pull the ball like a dog on a leash. And it does. The grain is everything. On that line then, Trip, what's the learning curve at Augusta National? Depends on how close you pay attention. Okay. If you pay attention, I mean, it's, it's, it's about as straightforward as, as anything I've ever been involved with. I mean, think about it. There's, you got the sprinkler heads, you got your green Bible, which is yards book and everything's to the front. All the measurements are to the front. And then, you know, going out there that day, the distance to the pin. So you got whatever 205 and it's 11 to the pin. So, okay. You got 216. And the elevation is probably the most difficult thing to, to appreciate and to realize how much that affects your club selection or which club you're giving your player because 
flag sail number 18, for instance, it's it's a it's 11 stories from the bottom of 18 to the back flag. 11 stories. 11 that. stories. That's huge. 11, you can't appreciate Yeah, that is. You can't appreciate it on TV, but that's, I mean, what is that? That's, depending on where you are, that can be two or three club difference. So is, is 10 just the opposite then? Is it that far down? 10 is nine, I believe. 10 is nine I'll stories probably, down. I think so. Unless I got it backwards. Maybe it's a nine and 11, but it's either nine or 11 or 11 and nine. How's that for help? That helps. I mean, it gives you an idea. If for those of us that know the course, it gives us a better idea and understanding of the elevation on, on that course. And, and, and being a caddy out there, what, what kind of advice did you get from other caddies or Freddie to help you be able to take somebody who's maybe there for their only chance of a lifetime to play that course and be able to navigate them around? Great question. Uh, <laughs> I actually got it without getting it directed at me. Uh, there was a caddy named Charlie Charles, and it was one of my first times caddying out there. And we were in a group with uh, two first timers, and of course the member. His guy was crazy nervous. I'm talking about you know sometimes your hands shake, but I mean, his whole body was shaking. I thought I was going to hit the ground and start doing the gator, you know, like an Animal House. <laughs> and this poor, this poor cat was he was uh, as, as we say in the south, he had something just shaking like a tractor wheel. And on number two. Charlie Charles, I thought he had about had enough of this nervousness and shaking. And the guy's in the read, and it was about a two footer. I'm, I'm kind of thinking, once you pick the damn thing up, but Charlie Charles gives him the read. And, and he says, So what we got here, Charlie? And he said, As soon as your knees stop shaking, I can scream the cup. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy started laughing, and the member started laughing. And he just smiled, and he knocked the screen the cup, and he was fine after that. So he's got to, I mean, it's, yeah, of course, it's a guest national, and we all know how hollow those grounds are. and the history and but it's still just a golf course so if you can somehow get your set you know your mindset like that is it's just it's a, just a golf course can you <laughs> enlighten me and my listeners on any kind of relationship or stories you have on who henry j brown was was he a, an augusta national caddy that i guess at one point in time was trying to qualify for the u.s open at one time oh oh sydney's brother sydney's brother yes yeah he qualified twice cross-handed now how do you know about henry brown how do you know these things research <laughs> i can't believe you know yeah uh yeah when he uh he was living up north and was really sick and um couldn't get any health care and uh freddie told my dad about this and then pop paid for the him, his flight down to augusta and, and treated him in his final days which I thought was, was really cool. But Henry, uh, phenomenal golfer. I mean, phenomenal. But he liked, he liked to have fun. He liked his partying. And he, unfortunately, well, fortunately, he qualified twice for the U.S. Open crosshand. And that was unheard of. I'm not sure anybody's ever done it. But, unfortunately, he missed his tea time both times from partying too much and was in the jailhouse. <laughs> so he's behind bars when they're calling his name. That's, that's where I was hoping you'd go. That's what I had researched. So. <laughs> oh, that's in Brent. Uh, I found it somewhere. Yes. <laughs> well, oh my gosh! Well, it was just a story that I knew from my dad and Freddie. Pretty true story. We'll talk off air. <laughs> okay. Well, I got another one on uh, on uh, Sydney, who was also quite a player in his own right. And uh, he, I was out there one time during the closing week, which is appreciation week, third week in May, when you know everybody gets to play, the media gets to play, the guys get to play, and it was caddy day. And Henry 
ace number four by hitting a big old sweeping hook into the left bunker. He hits the rake, jumps up on the green, does a parabola. How's that for a word? I don't even know what that means. But does this like arc and rolls into the hole. And he goes, oh, yeah, damn, uh, and walks away. <laughs> Leaves his clubs on the cart and just walks to the pro shop and goes, get, goes to get a beer. Didn't keep playing. You're done. <laughs> you cannot make that up. Freddie and me may end up being on Netflix, hopefully someday coming up. Is there a time frame on that where our listeners can kind of keep an eye on that? Yeah, it's, it's definitely still in the works. Uh, unfortunately, the COVID, like with everybody, it just really set everybody back in the in the movie world, and we got kind of backburnered. And it's, um, it's probably a two year period, if I were to guess, for us to see fruition of all that. But we're we're still in the works. Nothing got killed or squashed; just got postponed. You started Creative Wizards. You talked about your wife sitting you down at the table to write a prologue for your first book, Freddie and Me. Was that then what started the writing juices for you to become a writer? Well, I'd always actually written. I just apparently wasn't very good at it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, my, I first wrote in the third grade. I wrote a short story to try to win the love of a girl named Ginger Claxton. Uh, I tried it with uh, first with a, a 45 by Van Morrison, uh, brown-eyed girl. She had brown eyes. That didn't work. So I said, well, you know, I'm going to write a short story. And I did, and it was about the electric eels, and I borrowed the idea from uh, Archie comic books. And I had the song, uh, the EE group, like chicken soup, will cure whatever ails you. Our music's loud, we please the crowd, our music never fails you. I can't believe I still remember that, because I remember nothing in my life. But I, I worked her into the story, but I made her a groupie, and not a, a member of the band. Listeners out there, do not do that. That's <laughs> very bad. So that was my first effort into writing, and I thought, <laughs> This writing sucks, man. It doesn't get you anywhere. But I wrote articles, I mean, opinion columns in the, in the in college for the Bell Ringer, and that was a lot of fun. And then I tried to get syndicated with my opinion columns because everybody seemed to love them. And I've got more rejection slips, and I have empty socks and underwear. And then I just kind of gave up, kind of just drifted through life. I actually, crazily enough, got offered the a job as being an assistant professional at the Gus National by pro at the time. Dave Spencer and uh, believe it or not, I turned it down because pros don't play golf. I thought I don't want to be a merchant. Looking back, I'm like, what an idiot! Because <laughs> the guy I gave, I said, "What well, my golf team buddy? He'd be great at it." And so he took the job. He ended up going to find out, and you know, I ended up uh, lost all in the highway of life. But the assistants at the time at the national, I don't know what they make now, but the caddies made more than the assistants. Mm-hmm. But you know, two years, three years down the road, you're going to be at Pine Valley and you can write your own ticket. And I, I didn't see the forest or the trees. I saw like red dirt clay or something. I missed that altogether. But uh, yeah, looking back, I would have probably said yes. That wasn't remotely your question, but go ahead. Well, you've written, you've written several books. They're fantastic. You've been kind enough to send them to me and I've enjoyed them. The other one I want to talk about is the Caddy's Cookbook, 40 Recipes. Where did the inspiration come from to write a caddy's cookbook with recipes from Augusta national. Man, another great question. Uh, actually crazy love came from my, um, sister-in-law, uh, Jess Fletcher. And we exchanged recipes from time to time. And she wanted my gumbo recipe. And I, as you read the book, it's not, I don't like measurements and no. I want it to be stories. I want it to be fun. Cooking should be fun. If it's not fun, don't freaking do it. 
And that's why I don't bake because if you don't follow the recipe, you know, or measurements with baking, you're even you know, eating squash mud or whatever the hell you want to call it. So she said to me, just completely out of the blue after she read the gumbo recipe, and it's just almost identical to what you see in the in the Caddy's cookbook. And she said, "You got to write a cookbook." And I said, "Cookbook?" Kind of like the frame. I was like, "What do I know about cooking?" I mean, I know how to do it, and it's fun. And then I started kind of developing the idea, and I thought, well, I'm going to share recipes from the Caddy House, the Clubhouse, at Gus National Golf Club. And everything that's in there was either cooked in the Caddy House, the Clubhouse, or at my house for the Caddies. I've tried four of them. The Augusta National Transfusion and Confusion, which is the grape juice, ginger ale, and then you add some vodka. That's really good. The Maryland Crab Cakes was excellent. Chef Clark's potatoes are unbelievable. But the one that I'm telling you, there's a recipe called the Green Jacket Salad. People, get this book just for this recipe. I don't care if you put it on a garbage sack. That dressing, (laughs) I would eat out of a garbage sack. That stuff is absolutely, if there's not a word that I can put down about that dressing. When you say in the cookbook, that it takes some time and you may need to add a little bit more oregano and maybe a little bit more red wine vinegar. I'm sitting there playing with it and all of a sudden it clicked and I'm like, I don't even care what what's on the plate. I can pour this stuff on anything. That dressing is absolutely out of this world. <laughs> that is the best description I've ever heard in my life of that stuff. It is amazing. It's uh, it's ethereal. It's magical. It's surreal. It's, it's a Salvador painting and, and you're the melting watch. It's unbelievable. It is. I mean, I, I had some leftovers I put in the refrigerator the next day. I was eating it with crackers, and that's when I thought, if I spilled this on the floor, I would probably lick it up. I mean, this stuff is, is that good. <laughs> Do you have a favorite recipe in the book? That's certainly one of my. I would go with uh, either the collard greens. Actually, I put these two together. The collard greens and the horses fried pork chop sandwich. Okay. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. And the, uh, well, the fried chicken's pretty amazing, too. And then, believe it or not, they still have the same recipe for the fried chicken in the uh, in the clubhouse, and it's actually the key is the old bay seasoning. Mm. Believe it or not. Okay. Another book, all the memorable rounds. It's talking about mm. the experience at a golf course, basically. Why this approach when writing a golf book? Even the questions. That's a great one. And actually, that's your question is actually why I wrote it the way I wrote it. I had my uh, my editor. At Skyhorse, uh, a woman named Julie Gans, who's fantastic. She also edited the, uh, the last book, the Hey Tiger book. And she came to me with the idea of you know, the top 50 golf courses in, uh, in the world and you know, ranking them and then describing them and all that. And I'm like, you know what? That, golf Digest does that every year. It changes every year. It depends on how much money you got to get ranked. It doesn't happen. I say that a little grain of salt, but a whole lot to do with the golf course itself. It has to do with your influence and who you are. And because we all know golf courses, like say Palmetto Golf Club in Aiken, I would put that in the top 10 and on my list of any golf course. And I played a bunch of them. And so she came to me with that idea. And I said, let me think on that. And then I came back to her. And I said, you know what? It's not about the golf course. It's about the experience. I mean, it could be your local muni with your buddies and, and the experience of the day that make, make it a defining moment, not the golf course that you're playing. You could hit golf balls down the street and bounce them off the concrete. If you're with your buddies, you're pondering life, you're sharing a moment. So it's all about the experience. And I, I wanted the book to be about 
the golf experience. And that's, and that's what it is. And it's, it's like, I mean, granted I was playing cyber point with my dad, but the part of the great experience was our, our luggage got lost, but our clubs didn't. So we were, you know, took showers and we, kind of, that's before they had Febreze and all that stuff. So I'm sure we stunk like hell with our shirts on, but the, the pro at Augusta had, had gotten us out there. This is back in Cyprus. It was impossible to get on. So we had to get out there before first light, not first light, but before first light. And we're out there and we're just kind of standing around and I'm feeling like I'm doing a drug deal here, a drug drop. And our caddy walks up. He's about six, seven. His name's Sandy. And he takes our clubs out of our bag, puts in these little sling blade, like looking golf bags and said, let's go. And I'm like, go where it's people like dark. So we go onto the first tee and as the sun's coming up and the reflections on the ocean, he said, Take it off that left piece of that sunlight. I said, what? I can't see the ball. <laughs> but I did. And we played that place in about two hours and maybe five minutes. And it was just, we were hitting and getting it. And they were, you know, as we were playing around, um, members started showing up and playing. And, and we got stared down like crazy. Like, who those two guys? They are not members. They should not be here. And it was like interlopers. And as soon as we were done, we were gone. It was like Will of the Wisp. That was a great, great day. It's one of these books, Trip, that you could write endless volumes on because everybody's got an experience. So that's what I really like the book. When I close it up, I'm like, okay, this is volume one, but there's, it's not like this book is done. It could be written in 10 different volumes with 10 different experiences from people, which I really enjoyed. On that, the next thing, you've just released a book called Hey Tiger, You Need to Move That Mark Back with Steve Scott. Who in 1996 went head to head with Tiger Woods at Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club for the U.S. Amateur Finals? Speak a little bit about that book and how people can get their hands on this book. Oh wow! Actually, the, the uh, worldwide release date is actually June 1st. It's another chance thing, and I for anybody out there that uh, that wants to write when they grow up, it's it's all about chance moments. You've got to be open to serendipity and just keep your eyes, ears, and feet, toes, and hands open to. Ideas come out of nowhere, and that's where this one came from. Uh, I met Steve Scott first time at the Pig Pool uh, during the Masters at my dad's house. It's the Outpost Club does the Pig Pool, and he's the head pro for the Pig Pool. No, not the Pig Pool, but for the uh, for the Outpost Club. And uh, we just get a chat in a little bit. And the next year, he's actually starting this podcast for the Silver Club Golfing Society, and he interviewed me. And then that Christmas time. They had their big tournament at Champions Retreat uh, out here in Augusta. And he asked me to come speak to his group, but not speak like I normally do with, you know, up with a microphone and in front of a big group and all that. We're just sitting at the dinner table and telling stories. And I'm telling stories and he chimes in and I don't know where it came from, but he's talking about the U.S. Uh, Amateur 96. I actually forgot about that. And he was sharing the moment about, the match, you know, he's five up in the first 18. He shoots 70 in the second 18 and, and loses. Tiger shoots 65. But if you five up and you shoot 70 in the second 18, you're going to lose. That's impossible. But he talks about the 34th hole where Tiger, his mark was in the, his ball was in the way. So he marked it and he, he told him, Steve told him to move it and he moved it. And then Steve makes his putt. And so Tiger's got to make to win the hole. If he misses, they push and he'll be two up two to play. Steve will. Well, as he's leaving the green, he said, it's the first time I've looked at him all day like that. 
And I see that he's down there putting the ball down. He hadn't moved his mark back. And just Cashman says, hey, Tiger, you need to move your mark back. And Tiger just kind of looked up and said, oh. Didn't say thank you to nothing. Just, oh, and then moved it back and made the putt and won the hole and ended up winning the match. And Steve's telling me that story. I said, so wait a minute. If you don't say that to him and he putts from that point where he's at without moving his mark back, he loses the hole by rules of match play. And you win it. And you win the U.S. Amateur. And he does not. And you get the Nike contract or you get the lucrative of everything. And he, his confidence is crushed. He's no telling what his dad would have done to him. The world of golf changes forever. And he said, well, I never really thought about it like that. And I said, what? Damn me, hell. And my mind just went nuts. My brain just exploded. And I thought, there's an amazing story here. And that's how it began. And I often ask the question, you know, would I have done that? And that's to a lot of people, too. You know, with knowing, he said he just did it automatically. But I wonder, you know, if you knew that, hey, if I don't say anything, I'm going to win this thing. You know, in football, like, you you know, somebody's throwing a touchdown and, and your man's got you beat, you're going to interfere that shit out of him, right? Get away with it. But he just said, didn't think twice. It was, it was the right thing to do. He said golf had always been there for him and he's going to be there for the game of golf. I don't think Tiger would have done it. I would have done it. I would have done it for out of respect to the game. Yes. And I, and I believe, and I certainly believe you would have. Do you think Ben Hogan would have done it? No, no, no. There's, there's a lot of guys. There's a lot of guys that wouldn't do it. Arnold Palmer would do it. Yes, he would do it. And that's a great question to ask of all the, you know, all the great players. If I say in the hall of fame or enshrined or what do you want to do? And just go down and maybe it's personality that, that makes you say, Mm-mm. but he wasn't like Tiger was his buddy all day. He never said a word to him. Tiger never once said good shot, Steve. Never, ever, never. They, they spoke in the first tee. And in fact, uh, both Christy and Christy, Steve's wife, and Steve both said, the only thing here, thank you. He said, you know, it's a good shot. I'm going to acknowledge it. But he said, Tiger never said a word to him. And I kind of be like, all right, you son of a bitch. Lose it this way. <laughs> but I hope I would have said, move it back. I probably would. I hope so anyway. Trips Books. We've talked about <laughs> Freddie and me. Get your hands on it. Caddy's Cookbook. All the memorable rounds. Hey, Tiger, you need to move that mark back. Go to his website. Get your hands on these copies. He will autograph for him. The last book I want to talk about, I don't even know if you have it. Cast off to champions. You helped coach Josh Gregory, how a team of no names took on the powerhouse of college golf and won it all twice at Augusta U. They won the NCAA Division I championships in 2010 and 2011. Did you go to coach or coach come to you to, to help you write this book? Actually, I went to, uh, to coach. Uh, my editor of uh, Freddie and Me, a guy named Mark Weinstein, uh, went to another, Rodale, I believe is the, the company. Uh, he went to them and, and I was being a senior editor for them. And I came to him with the idea of, I mean, it was pretty amazing. They're all, when I say cast off the champions, I mean, they're all. Cast off. I mean, only Patrick Reed, who played for Georgia, and know there were issues there, and then he came to Augusta. He won two, Coach Gregory won, or the team won two national championships with kids nobody wanted. Not a single one of those kids were recruited by anybody else. And that's amazing. And I'm talking about winning, and you got to do a hell of a lot of good stuff during the season just to get the, the chance to go to regionals and then win regionals, and then you go into match play, and you're going to up against the biggest and the best that there are. And, and 
that did it all. It, it's it's a phenomenal. It's it's like Hoosier on steroids. Yeah, it's it is it's insane. Unfortunately, the the book didn't happen. I mean, it was finished. It's still finished, and it's looking for a home. But uh, Coach Gregory was out at SMU, and this is been a few years ago now. This is a a crusher, an absolute crusher for me. I went to a big old funk when this happened, but uh, he ended up having to resign. Because they they went from being like 150 in the country to almost winning the national championship his second year there. He actually uh, recruited Bryson DeChambeau, mm-hmm. and which I'm sure you know your doctor research. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the quick story version of it is there was a kid on the team um, that was going through some issues, and it was during the holidays. And Coach Gregory, great guy. Love him to death, but he, he texts like a high school girl. He was caddying for Henrik Norlander uh, in the U.S. Open. He was texting me hole by hole. I said, "Coach, from this progress." I said, "Coach, you're you're caddying the U.S. Open. Put the phone down. I'll, I'll follow it on TV. It's okay." So he, he loves to text, but he wanted to keep in touch with this kid and let him know he was there for him during the holidays uh, over Christmas. Well, that's against NCAA rules at the time. And a week after coaches was forced to resign. Because we're forced to design from SMU, they changed that rule. Now you can text anytime. That was not a coincidence. It, to me, it was a witch hunt by University of Texas and other coaches in that area that he went from you know 150 rank and two years later he's almost won the national championship. And he's basically all the players want to play for him. Your questions are amazing. Thank you, sir. What do you think your life would be if Freddie Bennett never came into it? Okay, this is the question of all time. I certainly wouldn't be here talking to you. Um, I would have never gotten into golf. Not even sure I'd ever be even been a writer. I might be in, like an accountant or something terrible. Or not, you know what? I would probably be a wasteoid. I, I think I'd have been just so so lost. I'm a I'm pretty scatterbrained, and I'm pretty. If I'm into something, I'm into it like a, like a savant. And if I'm not into it, I'm, I'm just staring out the window, you know, pondering life. Uh, Freddie gave me direction, focus. Um, I don't know, reason to live, reason for, for hope. And, and, um, and hey, man, you, I say you, you can't carry forever, man. You got to do something with your life. And when I say I didn't want to do what I want to do, he ended up. Uh, put me on the bag of a guy named David Warden, and that's in Freddie and me. And he was the CEO of McCann Erickson. And after being out with him for a couple of years, and he asked me, I know what I was going to do with my life. And I said, I don't know. He said, What do you know about advertising? I said, Man, I don't know shit. He said, You're perfect. Let's go. I said, Go where? He said, New York. I said, For what? He said, You're going to write copy for me. I said, I've never written copy in my life. He said, You're the king of bullshit. You can write copy. I said, Okay. And then next thing I know, I got a plane ticket in my hand and I'm off to New York. And But Freddie put me on his bag thinking maybe that's where I need to go. So all that happened because of Freddie. I had nothing to do with that. And I, in fact, I, funnily enough, I've, I've never actually had an interview like for a job. I've had these things like with you, but never went for a job because I've either been really close to the person that hired me, like Freddie hired me to be a caddy or David Warden had hired me to go work for McCann Erickson. Uh, or I hired myself and I started my own company. So I, never, I wouldn't know how to go there. I don't even have a resume. I just got kind of, you know, just got me. But uh, it was funny. I 
I'm saying, well, David, I don't, you know, I'm going to go into, at the time, McCann Erickson was the, was the biggest advertising agency in the world. I said, I'm going to write copy for, for, for you, for this. I mean, I don't, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I'm like, and these other guys are going to go, like, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm the CEO. I don't need your resume. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I like that. Let's end this show on this question. Once a caddy, always a caddy. No doubt. No, no, no. Golly, most of your questions. Yeah. No, once a caddy, always a caddy. I, you, the caddy world is, is, at least it was at Augusta. It's, it's a very respectful world. We're all in this together. And hours are early and hours are late. We work hard. We play hard. And you love and respect each other. And it's a, it was a, I know brotherhood is kind of a, certainly Dan Quinn, no offense to Dan Quinn, because I love the Falcons, but it might get a little bit overused, but it really was a brotherhood out there. I felt, I felt like family. I couldn't wait to get there. And we were always, you know, filing and hugging and man hugging. And I'm there for you. And I got this rake and, you know, you get the next one and I get the flag. And it was, it was an amazing family atmosphere it was always if this makes any sense it was like a it's like a boy and his dog you know because a dog will love you when nobody else does and that's that's what it felt like i felt I felt like a boy and his dog out there sure. and freddie has had a there's another great phrase um you're cat you're like the marines and he said marines you're uh either light green or dark green you're still green so if you're black, black or white you're not black or white you're like green or dark green and to Freddie, you can care what color you are, who you are, you're, you're a caddy. If you were a caddy under Freddie Bennett, you were family. You were welcome. Trip, my man, thanks for being on Before the Lights and talking about your journey, your books. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Tommy. Uh, you're a tremendous host, and it's a great show, and I certainly appreciate it, and I'm honored to be on here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, if you'd like to contact me, send me an email at beforethelightspod at gmail.com. You can find me there. If you follow me on Instagram, at beforethelightspodcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin. <laughs>